Hi, everyone. I'm Emily Ramshaw. I'm the editor-in-chief of the Texas Tribune, uh, and I am delighted to welcome you to the ninth annual Texas Tribune Festival. Uh, and to this live recording of the Tribcast, which is my favorite event of every single festival. Uh, if you listen to the Tribcast regularly, you are also familiar with my esteemed partner in crime at the end there, Texas Tribune executive editor and co-founder, Ross Ramsey. So I'm excited to tell you about the four panelists we have joining us today. Uh, in the first segment, we'll have former New Mexico Governor Susana Martinez, a Republican and El Paso native. <laughs> And Texas State Representative Mary Gonzalez, a Democrat of Clint, yep. which is also, which is outside of El Paso. And in the second segment, we'll have Washington Post columnist Karen Tumulty, who's sitting in the back right there and you'll see her in a minute. Uh, and Republican political strategist and media consultant Rick Wilson, both of whom have their keen eyes on Texas. So thank you to Rick. Okay, I have to do it. Before we start, I'm going to jump through some important housekeeping. First off, today's Tribcast is generously presented by the Texas A&M University System. The U.S. Army will put the future to the test at Texas A&M System's Relis Campus. Learn more at afc.tamus.edu. Walmart. Today, the Walmart Foundation announces $4 million in grants to help end hunger in Texas. Learn more at walmart.org hunger. And Texas 2036, pursuing long-term data-driven strategies to secure Texas's prosperity through our bicentennial and beyond. Join us at texas2036.org. I also want to, of course, quickly shout out the members who make our journalism possible, some of whom are sitting with us in the audience today. Thank you for your support. As a special token of our appreciation, one of you was randomly handed a card when you walked in. If that was you, please raise your hand. All right. Uh, congratulations. You've just won an Amazon Echo spot provided by Silicon Labs. Oh, you. Oh, yeah. Could be you. If you're, I know, I feel like Oprah up here. It's not a car, but it's close. Uh, if you're not yet a member, there is still time to become one. Anyone who donates $35 or more to our newsroom before midnight on Saturday has a chance to win a beachside Baja getaway weekend, including accommodations from our friends at the Hotel San Cristobal. I've been there. It's incredible. Go without your kids. And round-trip round airfare uh, for two from Southwest Airlines. You can visit texastribune.org slash Baja2019 for full giveaway rules and make your donation now at texastribune.org slash give or by texting Tribune to 444-999. Woo, okay, through with all of that. Uh, I am up here on stage with three El Pasoans, which is pretty incredible. Uh, Governor Martinez, Representative Gonzalez, I wanna start um, with the two of you and talking about um, the aftermath of the tragic El Paso massacre where people who look like you, who have family names like yours, uh, in a community both of you hail from, were targeted for their race, their ethnicity. What has that been like for you both personally? I know that's a pretty simplistic question, but what has it been like personally? You're the representative of the state of Texas. I'll let you go first. Um, gosh. You know, El Paso, if anybody has ever been there, is the most loving and humble and beautiful community. I think waking up the day after and this being the reality was really difficult. It wasn't like someone in our community, it, it was someone who came and targeted our community and I think that's a very different reality to kind of wake up and feel the whole world has literally shifted and broken under your feet. Um, it was probably 
it was the hardest thing I've ever experienced as a legislator. I will also say that it was moving and very beautiful how the community just, God, we just wrapped each other with so much love. I mean, if there was ever a symbol of love, like it was El Paso in that moment. And so um, it's been hard. It's still hard. Um, but it, you know, so how, I mean, what, what is it like to wake up in a world where you're targeted for being brown? I think, think racism has always existed. I think now it just existed in a way that we realize the ultimate consequence of oppression is death. And we know that, but it's really different to experience it. Governor, this, this community obviously could have been yours. It could have been one in New Mexico. Talk a little bit about what this has been like. Having been born and raised in New Mexico, I mean, uh, El Paso for 23 years, there were differences that weren't, we couldn't see them. I mean, there were people of all shapes and colors and gender. It didn't, we didn't see each other as a Hispanic or Anglo or Asian or, I mean, it just, it was a beautiful blend of people. And I actually had never been asked, what are you? Until I went to law school out of state of Texas. And so many times people would ask me, what are you? And I kept thinking, a girl? <laughs> I don't know what you're asking me. Um, a law student? No. I don't know. I, I, didn't know. I didn't get it because I didn't have any of that kind of impact my life when I was growing up in El Paso. And so when you see that come to El Paso, where we are so well blended with even Juarez and all of the economy that goes back and forth and shopping that happens and people that visit, the first thing I did was jump on the telephone to call my family and say, because I know they're shopping at Walmart. I know they're shopping someplace that is there in the Silo Vista Mall area. And I'm on the phone saying, get out of there. Go home, lock your doors, and do not, they don't have anybody yet. The urgency of getting my family into their homes with locked doors was so important to me. Now, the aftermath, I think, tells us that there is evil out there. There are people who are, are evil and bad um, and do not deserve to live amongst us. Uh, need to be locked up because they have a way of thinking that is so not uh, part of El Paso or part of America or part of the people who live here. And so um, I don't know that we'll ever erase that horrible thing from El Paso or even in the future. Um, there will be these kinds of folks amongst us always. It just becomes something that we, we try and work hard to prevent, but at the end of the day, um, you know, how do you change people from the inside out? Ross, I want to talk for a couple of minutes about the response from state leaders to this. Obviously, this was a tragedy that was closely followed by another mass shooting in the Midland-Odessa area. Um, it's gone beyond thoughts and prayers, but the response has fallen well short of a special legislative session, which is what some folks have called for. Right. You know, the first two shootings we had in Texas in the last two years were Sutherland Springs Baptist Church and Santa Fe High School. And after that, the governor put together the roundtables and actually did a pretty good job of everybody from no more guns in Texas to guns on everybody in Texas and uh, to see what they could find uh, in terms of common ground. And they came out with a list of a long list of proposals. And the one that sort of drew the line for the gun debate for a while was a proposal for red flag laws. This is a law that if you are a danger to yourself or to other people and you have guns, after a judicial hearing, the judge can temporarily remove your guns until everything calms down and everybody's fine. And the governor said, I think we ought to look at this. And within, I think it was three weeks, it might have been four weeks, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick said, it's not going anywhere in the Senate. So that becomes the line in Texas 
beyond which they won't go. They did a bunch of stuff to harden schools, change architecture. They did a bunch of, you guys passed a bunch of bills on mental health. Um, you also gave school marshals the ability to carry guns in schools who didn't have it before. And it was a really mixed bag. Um, and then after the legislative session, after the shootings in El Paso and Odessa, the conversation came around again. What are, what's the state going to do? I think, you know, I'd love to hear what you have to say about it, but I think the El Paso delegation read out the governor pretty well when he went down there. And I, the, the shift here was the lieutenant governor came out of this and said, I think we need to talk about an expansion of background checks. The Odessa shooter apparently bought a gun from a private dealer. There's a hole in the background checks law that says if you sell individual to individual, there's no check. And the lieutenant governor says, I still think family and friends should be able to sell, but the stranger to stranger sales should require a background check. And as small a step as that is, it's over, he's crossing a fence line, as Abbott did before, that had been pretty, pretty solid and pretty drawn in Texas for a long time. And, you know, I don't know how it's going to end up, but, you know, those could be the beginnings of a conversation. And I, I'm, I'm curious what you guys said to him in clo behind closed doors because well, the whole world's they came curious. out different. <laughs> yes. Why don't you tell us what you said to him oh, behind oh, yeah. closed doors? <laughs> Cute. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, here's why I'm proud of. The El Paso delegation, and we were talking about this earlier, it has historically not really always been the most united front. And I think... They've been for, a gift to journalism. <laughs> <laughs> the former, the former. But the current yeah. delegation has, for, for the past four years, becoming more and more united. Thank God, right? Because going through this, we were a team. And so we made a big commitment to not politicize what happened, but to have goals, have outcomes. And the first goal was the first center the healing of our community. I think, when, so when we were behind closed doors, right. we, we, we were very honest about that. We're here not to like talk about politics, but healing. And one of the things our community needed to heal properly was to see that these lives weren't lost in vain, was to see that, that we could move the ball forward on something. And when that was our ask, and I think in a really way, like we weren't out there very publicly saying, let's have a special session. We were very united and very concise about what we were trying to do, and I think that helped. Governor Martinez, if this had happened while you were governor, you know, these sort of two back-to-back -back mass shootings, I know it's hard to think, you know, how you would have responded, but what kind of legislation, if any, would you have called for? What do you think is appropriate? You know, should Texas take some of the steps that New Mexico has taken in this regard? Well, I have strengthened and signed law um, that allows for the NICS system to receive more information. It's a failed system because law enforcement doesn't receive all the information that it needs. When you have a, a person who has mental issues, mental health issues, that, that, that has gone through the court system, and keep that in mind, they have gone through the court system. Not everybody goes through the court system. You may voluntarily go to a therapist, a psychiatrist, a psychologist, receive medication for being bipolar, whatever it may be, or parents take you or family support you, but you're not in the court system, so there's no reporting necessary into the NICS system. What we did is strengthen that to make sure at least those involved in the court system go into the law enforcement in, uh, population that they get to know who should not have guns and, and gun sellers. Um, I will tell you that I owned a gun since I was 18. I was a security guard for my dad. Uh, my mom and dad had a business, a security guard business, and 
you know, Catholic Church bingo is there, popular um, in El Paso, and very, that's a lot of folks. So I would secure the cars when my dad was inside securing uh, the money. Um, and so my dad gave me my first gun, uh, three fifty seven Magnum Smith & Wesson. I weighed 110 pounds, and I think that gun was heavier than I was. But I had to learn how to shoot it. I had to go through a course. I had to be qualified for it, and then I was able to carry it. And I've carried a gun and had a gun ever since. Um, I'm a concealed carry. I believe in the Second Amendment. I think that I know as a prosecutor on the border for 25 years, the kind of people we have arrested, the kind of shootings that take place every single day, maybe not in mass numbers like 22 in El Paso, but every single day in every neighborhood in this country are being shot by people who have stolen their guns, bought them in the streets, bought them in the alleys, borrowed, took them from their parents, sold them to somebody. They're 90% of them are not lawfully purchased. They are sold out down and low, and they use those kind of guns to cause harm to others or to kill them. And so I support the Second Amendment because, by God, someone approaches me. I'm in a situation where I need to protect myself, even if it is in a situation like a Walmart or a Cielo Vista or something like that. I'm going to have mine so that if I need to help protect myself, my family, or those around me, I will be able to do, and I am trained to do so. I don't just get a little license. I have to go through a course, and I have to qualify, and I have to make sure that I properly use that weapon. And so I support the Second Amendment, not because of the NRA. I support the, the, the I, I want to carry my handgun because of the Second Amendment and because I have a right to do so to protect those around me and those I love. I want to ask, I mean, do you, do you support the way that, you know, Dan Patrick in Texas is talking about, um, you know, curbing person-to-person, uh, friend-to-friend uh, -person gun sales, background checks for those types of gun sales? Do you think that, I mean, maybe you wouldn't be at such great risk or needing to carry your weapon if there were, you know, more background checks in those types of circumstances that you're talking about? You know, the background checks are as good as um, those who comply with it. And those who are buying their guns in the alleys or handing them off because they're stolen guns because I need a gun and I'm going to go and shoot the guy that's on the corner that shouldn't be on the, my corner because that's where I deal my drugs or whatever it may be. What makes us think that they're going to exchange guns behind the alley and comply with the law? They're not. I mean, they're already criminals that are, have bad intentions. But you also look at, if I'm going to give my gun to my, my husband gives me a gun because we're going to go hunting. I don't like to hunt, but let's, that's an example. Um, he loves hunting. Does he have to register that with me? If he gives a gun as a gift to my son, who's a law enforcement officer, does that have to be registered? Because he has weapons that he's had for a long time, and they mean sentimental value, and so he gives it to his son. Does he have to go through a background check for that? So is that an argument not to do anything? Or no. are, there some, are there some things here that you could no. do? So is it, but is it is an argument for, but, but, don't make me pay for something somebody else bad did, um, because I, have, I am an American. I have a constitutional right. So, so tell me where that, so tell me what you can do. Is a, is, if you're, because Texas is really conservative about this and, and very protective of the laws that it has, when you're having this conversation, where is the gray area? You know, um, I don't think there's a, a you know, I guess the outlier here is Beto. Hell yes, I'm going to take your guns away. But you know the 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 small steps that 
the governor has taken on red flag laws or talked about taking, um, that the lieutenant governor has talked about with background checks, other things like that. Are there some areas where they ought to legislate? I think in the gun shows, for example, where they have the gun shows, we can have clearly background checks being done there. Right. The problem is, if you're in the parking lot selling your gun, it doesn't apply to that. Right. Right? So I'm just saying that the, but, I'm just but, saying what the law says and what it does and doesn't do. Are there two kinds of crimes here, though? Because you're talking about um, you're talking about one kind of crime, and these are these conversations are generated in large part by mass shootings, and none of the four in the last two years in Texas got their gun in those ways. I mean, they you know the the closest was the Odessa shooter, but he bought it online in a way anybody in this room could. Um, the El Paso shooter apparently bought his. Uh, mail order and had it sent in. The shooter in Sutherland Springs had quite a collection, um, and I don't remember the circumstance in Santa Fe, but, but I don't remember any of those being an illegal gun sale or a back alley sale or anything sold. like that. But well, it was sold, it was and sold. it was sold in a lawful way, and so now we're back to law. Is there something you can do in law or should do in law in light of those shootings to control the situation or to make things safer? Well, if they're complying with the law to have a background check and they are purchasing it and having a background check, what do we add to that to ensure this person is not someone who will follow through with something that is negative or bad or criminal? Representative Gonzalez, what is the legislature going to have the stomach for? <laughs> You're asking me to predict the legislature two years from now? It's impossible. But um, Go for it. <laughs> I know. You predict it first. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I will say this. I... I appreciate and respect you, but I think the argument that's saying that we, that, you know, we shouldn't do anything, or we, can't, we are limited in what we can do because I don't want to be punished for the bad people. The, here's the reality, is that there are kids in classrooms right now who have anxiety and can't learn and can't sleep because they're scared. And I think that we have a responsibility. I think we have a responsibility to do more. I think that if you want to have a gun, everybody should have a background check. I don't care if you're my dad or my uncle. What is the problem with knowing that you have the capacity to be responsible with that? I mean, I'm not, I, I don't own a gun, and I, and I live in the country, and I understand people who do have guns, but I also don't think it's wrong to have some basic common sense things. Here's why. The world looks very different than it did hundreds of years ago. And also, we live in a, we live in a time where extreme nationalism is, is, is growing, sadly. And if we don't have some types of controls, if we don't do something, then I would say that we're being irresponsible. So I'm all for everyone gets a background check. I'm all for making sure we do these red flag laws and more. I'm all for really asking us to just be a little bit more commonsensical about these things. Representative, I want to ask, uh, you mentioned the sort of the climate that we're living in right now. How much, uh, when you look at what happened in El Paso, uh, how much do you blame the Trump presidency or the Trump administration when you look at uh, a tragedy like that? Oh, um, <laughs> how much do I, do, before I got elected, I was a professor and I taught social justice education. I worked on anti-racism curriculum. That is something that I'm trying to end oppression is probably the number one thing I wake up for in the morning because I believe that everybody should live in a world that equity and justice is 
right, is, exists, right? Do I think it's one person? No. Do I think that he contributes? Yes. Do I think that we have to realize that there were also a lot of people who helped get him elected when he would use very dangerous rhetoric and that we have to have a conversation about how words matter and how um, specifically leaders allow for there to be a space to invite hate before at least it felt a little bit more taboo to be racist or sexist or heterosexist. And so if you couldn't speak it, then maybe you couldn't act on it. But now it's like, let's speak it and now let's act on it. And now what the consequences is people in my community died. The youngest person who died in El Paso was my constituent. 15 year old, I, I cried. The 50, a 15 year old high schooler who had no, who had a whole life. And so do I, do I think, I can't, I can't just look at the president and say, you're the one responsible, but can I say that you are part of a culture that is, that is growing, and instead of being responsible and trying to end that culture, you are create, giving fuel to that culture. But he's not the only one, and I think it takes a collective conversation. Governor Martinez, uh, you know, at times... Uh, at times, you have strongly denounced things Trump has said, including referring to Mexican immigrants as rapists, um, but you've also supported some of his other policies. What do you personally think about this impeachment effort? <laughs> you know, I'm a prosecutor, and I wait for the collection of evidence and facts. Who said what? What did they say? Um, who did they say it to? First hand, second hand. Um, are the transcripts real? Not real. Um, I, I, you cannot, I mean, news is popping constantly. And there's a tweet, and all of a sudden, it's tweeted and retweeted. And does that become truth, fact? Or is it just because it's been repeated that it seems real? And so as a prosecutor, as a lawyer, you collect information. And then it, there'll be a judgment made by um, the House whether or not to proceed. And I think that's what they're trying to do. They had testimonies today. Um, I think they're trying to collect information to then be able to decide, do they proceed with the impeachment proceedings? That is their right, and the fact that they're doing it, especially on such an important issue, is something they, they should move forward on. So that's a very like prosecutorial approach, but what is your gut telling you? <laughs> you know what's amazing is that I wasn't a prosecutor and made decisions based on my gut, because I would have made some very bad decisions if it was my emotion or if it was my gut. Because there were people I thought were guilty of whatever happened, but I didn't have the evidence. And to have gone forward with my gut would have been tremendously um, harmful to that human being. And so I never made those kinds of decisions. Do you think this set of facts is worth chasing, and how would you chase it? Sure, you have a whistleblower. You have someone who says that they are, um, they know of things that have happened that maybe um, it is, it, that is harmful to the country and security, national security, et cetera, and as a whistleblower, absolutely, it is something that they need to be able to look into. Um, they need to get the whole picture and then make a decision based on that entire thing. Well, one more quick question before we have to swap out panels. Obviously, both from border states, uh, you've had very different uh, opinions about the border wall. What do you currently think about um, you know, efforts by the Senate to curb the president's ability to uh, use uh, money for military-based construction projects to build a border wall? I lived in Thomas Manor in El Paso, Texas. And there was, my junior high was about a football field from my backyard. And the river was probably another half a football field. Um, 
I experienced the very first wall that went up when I was in junior high, and that was called the tortilla curtain. Um, it was a chain link fence, which was weird, as though they didn't know, you know wire cutters existed. Um, and so I remember going down the border freeway all the time to get to UTEP, um, and you had to go slow because there would be a rash of folks running across, um, and you had to make sure you weren't going to hit somebody. But I remember as a young child that when people would come across, you had clothes hanging outside, or you had your bicycle outside, and these are folks that are coming across with nothing because it, I mean, you just can't carry very much, whether it be water or clothing or whatever it may be. So clothes would come off of our lines. Our bicycles would be gone. Um, I, I believe very strongly in that this country is built on immigrants. Um, my grandfather, and you studied um, Mexican-American uh, history, and my grandfather, great-grandfather is Toribio Ortega. Um, uh, he was involved in the Mexican Revolution. He was a general uh, in the Mexican Revolution. So I strongly believe in the immigrants and the big part of our economy that they are and our thread, the fabric of our, our, our flag. However, we cannot, this isn't sustainable um, to have an influx without having an end game someplace within the country to be able to absorb um, the different, and, and keep in mind, it's not just people from Mexico, it's not just people from Central America. It is the path of least resistance. I worked that border. I know who came across whenever we were dealing with them, and crimes were being committed. Yes, my husband was a law enforcement officer as well, working with Border Patrol, working with whoever it may be that was along that border to ensure safety of the communities that we were promised, we swore that we were going to protect. And so the wall is a piece of that solution. It is not the be-all, end-all. It never will be the be-all, end-all. Um, you have to have a multitude of answers to a single problem to be able to handle it um, in the best way that you can. Representative, it's also in your backyard, yeah. in some ways, literally. Yeah. <laughs> no, literally. Um, shameless plug. So in November, we go to, uh, to vote on constitutional amendments. Prop 2 is my bill to help bring water and wastewater infrastructure to low-income communities in rural Texas. Right now in my district, there's 253 colonias. There are communities in Texas, thousands of Texans don't have clean water and wastewater infrastructure. So my frustration is we're going to spend billions of dollars on the wall when there are thousands of Texans who literally can't drink their water, flush their toilet, or wash their clothes. And so it's frustrating to see the conditions of my people when, the, when at the same time we're doing this. But this also, you know, El Paso was awful, the shooting. But this was one traumatic event after lots of traumatic events. The month before was the Clint Detention Center, where there were 700 children in a space for 100 children. And a year before that, there was a Tornillo Tent City. We have been dealing with a crisis in my, in literally in my district for over a year that has been exhausting and dehumanizing. So my response to the border wall is that it doesn't work. There are other priorities and needs in our communities. And at the end of the day, it's a symbolic political move, and I feel, to reinforce who we think our country is. And our country is a diverse country. And here's what we also know, is that I went to a conversation with a demographer, I guess, a couple of weeks ago, and we need immigrants. And we have enough space for everybody, because our society is actually declining in population when it comes to the things that we need. And so here's what I will say. I welcome all people in our 
to our country. I think we have space for everybody. I think that we created the economic and political and social situations in Latin America that make people flee where they're at. And I think that we have real needs that people that we should be paying attention to and not be reinforcing a border wall. All right, well, I'm gonna try to keep us on schedule by swapping these two out for two more. Please join me in giving them both a round of applause. Okay, while Rick and Karen are coming up here, I'm going to thank a couple more Tribcast sponsors. Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas. Want healthcare insights? Listen to the Blue Promise podcast hosted by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas. Download it wherever you get your podcasts and learn more at standingwithtexas.com. Raise your hand, Texas. Want to join us in supporting and strengthening the future of public ed? Sign up for e-news and mobile advocacy alerts. Text Raise My Hand to 40649. And Uber, whose platform is committed to igniting opportunity for the people we serve in Texas. Learn more about Uber's products at uber.com. Okay, so wow, you two, what a week. It's been a little busy. <laughs> I can't, I'm impressed that you even week. made it to the ATX. I thought maybe we would lose you in, in uh, D.C., well, there... oh, nobody, nobody's going to stop me from coming to <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Karen. We appreciate it. It's, uh, it's only that the food and the people are better by about an order of magnitude. So, <laughs> And plus, Nancy Pelosi's coming here, knock on wood. So uh, you're going to have the opportunity to yeah, get with her in person. So, okay, this seems like an obvious question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Uh, is it an abuse of power to lean on a foreign country to provide dirt on your political <laughs> adversary? So I've been around politics a long time and the defense world a little bit in my career, and the word you're looking for is duh. <laughs> I mean, this, this, is, this is like the raw distillation of Donald Trump's abuse of power. The whole thing is about leaning on somebody in the, it, it, you read the whole transcript, and first off, this guy's got his number. Mr. Trump, I stayed in your luxurious hotel in Trump Tower. <laughs> but, tr but, but Trump's ask is so blunt and the quid pro quo is so obvious. And when you see this now as a part of a pattern of other calls and other actions that were taken outside by my old boss, Rudy, and by, and by other members of the constellation of, of the Trump universe, this thing stinks on ice. And so, yes, it is a flagrant abuse of power. Is it a quid pro quo? He was asking him to do something that would help his personal chances at re-election. Yes, and it as Ellen Weintraub, the chairman, chairwoman of the Federal Election Commission, who is also going to be here in Austin, has pointed out it is illegal for foreigners or foreign governments to contribute to political campaigns, federal campaigns in the United States. I mean, there are just all kinds of uh, issues you could unpack here. You may not accept anything of value, and that includes favors. That includes opposition research. That includes intelligence. That includes getting a prosecutor to launch a spurious investigation of the thing that Joe Biden's son never did. I mean, all of these things, the, the, the fact that we live in such a weirdly siloed world now of one set of the media is like, Trump was innocent and did nothing wrong, and, and everyone else is just with their jaw hanging down, how obvious this is. Um, but yeah, it, it, is, it is clearly a, a violation at every level. Ross, have statewide's been in his corner or not? I mean, what have we been hearing out of the sort of Texas peanut I, gallery? You know, mostly dead silence. You know, the, the, the congressional delegation from Texas split along flag lines. So the, the Republicans are all backing the president, saying this is a political witch hunt. You know, we don't think we're not taking this seriously. 
the Democrats are all, as I understand it, um, for, an, um, for an inquiry, and about half of them are for impeachment. So, you know, the step before and the step of. Um, so right now it's on, on party lines. And um, right now it reads, you know, I mean, you can sort of read it both ways, kind of to your point. You know, you've got this thing where, on one hand, politically, this is, you know, everybody to your side. And as a matter of law or prosecution or, you know, criminality or whatever you want to call it, you know, for the prosecutors, it's, you know, unfolding a little bit more slowly, but a little bit more dreadfully, I think. I will say one observation that I noticed this afternoon, and I, I, I wish I could remember who wrote the story. Somebody went to every Republican senator, and somehow or another in the last 24 hours, they've all lost the ability to read an eight-page memo. And none of them are like, oh, I'm so busy, I haven't been able to read it. I, I, a memo, what are these small things on the paper? You know. So the, the, the fact that they're trying to duck and cover on this tells you a lot about how nervous they are. Karen, talk about uh, Pelosi's calculus with all of this. Obviously, we know she's been historically reluctant to pursue the sort of calls for impeachment from within her party. What's she thinking now? Well, she was she was reluctant to pursue it in part because she was protecting her moderate freshman members, the ones who come from Republican-leaning districts. Uh, the dam broke when a number of those members, including seven on the op-ed page of the Washington Post, themselves came out for beginning an impeachment investigation. I think she is still, you know, has qualms about this. I think she's right to have qualms about it. Uh, I think that how this investigation is executed is absolutely crucial. Uh, we've never, not in modern history, had an impeachment investigation landing in the middle of a presidential election season. I mean, Bill Clinton, Richard Nixon were both lame ducks, essentially, by the time this happened to them. So they've got to handle it in a way that looks above board. Uh, I have not been impressed so far with the performance of the House Judiciary Committee. You look at them with Corey Lewandowski last week. Um, I think they need to think about their procedures, and it shouldn't be members of Congress showboating with their five minutes. They need to turn over the questioning to professional staff lawyers. And because I do think that they are also going to be judged on process here. Is there a way to do this that looks that actually looks fair? Not that is fair, that actually looks fair to people? Or are we so divided on this that you can't actually ever get to that appearance? I think if the Democrats were to front load all these sessions with professional staff, professional questioners, and, and Karen's exactly right, you know, when did Corey Lewandowski start to take body blows? It was when Barry Burke came out there and said, uh-uh, you're going to the woodshed with daddy. We're not playing your games. We're not, we're not vamping for five minutes to, to, to have, you know, congressman so-and-so on camera that night. They went after him on the substance. So you can do this in a methodical and, and, and corrosive way that is much more damaging than, than watching the members vamp and strut around a little bit. Um, and, and that's how Watergate became such a painful experience for the Nixon folks, because once the professional prosecutors were going through the documents and asking the questions, and, well, let's go back on page 65, and can you tell us what you said that day? And grinding and grinding away. That is a little more boring. It's a little less of a spectacle, but I think it would also rivet Donald Trump's attention because everything for Donald Trump is on the television. He is completely, every, the world is mediated by how the TV picture looks. 
And if you're dragging every one of those scumbags up there and you're slowly, methodically asking them questions <laughs> with, with, with pipe-swinging attorneys, it's a lot different than Jerry Nadler. I mean, Corey Lewandowski did everything but go up and pee on Jerry Nadler's desk. <laughs> and, and as I've chokingly said, the correct response about three minutes after Corey Lewandowski started to ass off in the meeting was to say the following thing. Sergeant at arms, take that man into custody. Sir, you are in contempt. That's it. You've got to treat these people like the, like the criminal adjacent scumbags that they are. Karen, I want to ask what this all means for Democrats, because you do see Democrats being like, oh, crap, we, have, we, we really have to do this, but at the same time saying, like, well, what does this mean for us in 2020? So take it out a step. What does it mean for the electorate? Well, I, I, I spent some time yesterday, in fact, I have a column in the paper today asking exactly that question. I think a couple of and, uh, smart people, and writing down what they told me, um, but I think one thing it does is it kind of blots out the sun. It's gonna be very hard to talk about any issue next year that is not impeachment, which is difficult for these House freshmen because don't forget, they got elected in these Republican districts not by talking about Trump last year, but by talking about healthcare and talking about college. And I, I don't think there's gonna be a lot of oxygen for those. Um, the presidential race, it's going to be a lot harder now for those candidates who are at the rear of the pack to have that magic moment that, that breaks them out in Iowa or whatever because, again, impeachment is, is going to sort of freeze everything. Joe Biden, it'll be interesting to see how he plays this. Both Trump has now elevated him by proving that he is the candidate that Donald Trump most fears, but at the same time, he has put a lot of evidence-free allegations about Biden into the water. And it'll, so Biden is going to be, Biden, who is not the most adroit politician, is going to be having to balance those things. And I think the other candidates, you know, Elizabeth Warren was the first candidate to call for impeachment. She has run the most sure-footed campaign of all. She has momentum. Uh, she may do well, depending on what this does to Joe Biden, but I think the rest of them, I think the guys who, and women who are in the back of the pack, they, I just don't see how they break out. I, I think there are a lot of things that, that impeachment alters in the electoral chemistry of 2020 at every level. At the presidential level, I think it actually clarifies it a lot for Democrats because every re-election for a president is a referendum on the incumbent. It is about nothing else. It is a referendum, is this the guy for four more years? And I think right now, this is something that we already saw that the Republican base is gonna be with Trump. It's a smaller base than it was, but it's gonna be with Trump, largely no matter what he does. The, the idea though, not just that Trump is a reckless tweeter or a, an insult comic or, you know, or, or, or just a, you know, a, a jackass most of the time to average Americans, now there's an element of it that this guy's engaged in active criminality that he's abusing the power of his office. And, and I think that that, in the broad spectrum, it does make it so that you're only gonna see the top tier get oxygen from now on. You're, I mean, all these other guys that are, that are hoping for their magic moment, and I, forget it. You know, go, go, go run for Senate somewhere, go do something else, find a hobby. Um, 
So if, so if I'm running for school board, I need to figure out where I am on the impeachment. You, you probably do. Well, yeah, at the, at the lower tier, at the lower tier, there, people are going to be asked that a lot. And I think the correct formulation, if you're a Democrat running, is I wish we didn't have to talk about impeachment. I wish we could talk about health care and jobs for middle class families and working to, for a cleaner environment. But unfortunately, we've got a guy who has forced this upon the country because he will not obey the law, he will not obey the norms, he will not follow the rules, and he sits in the Oval Office acting more like a king than a president. But I, I so. also think, though, as important as it is, you know, who our next president is, and it is hugely important, I think there's a really, even a more transcendent question with all of this, which is that we're going across uncharted territory here. When we get to the other side of wherever this is taking us, are we going to end up as a country that is even more deeply divided and more bitter than we are today, or is the country going to come to some realization that they are just going to have to like get past the ghastliness that got us to this point? And I, that I think in many ways is the most fearsome thing about this entire exercise. Yeah. Who comes out of this looking good? Karen. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, when, when, yeah. you watched the, when you watched all the Watergate hearings and all of that, Congress came out looking pretty great. And, and you know, you, had a, you, had a, you walked into that with the executive high and the Congress low, and you sort of leveled things up a little bit. Right now, this looks like, uh, you know, a cafeteria food fight. Yeah, well, it is, and, and, I, and I think, unfortunately, three scenarios. Donald Trump is impeached and removed from office. There will be a, a gigantic hole in our political culture on the Republican side forever. They will feel robbed and cheated. They will ignore everything Trump did to get himself there um, and every, every sin and every crime and just think he, it was stolen. If he remains in office and beats impeachment, the Democrats will think that Fox News and Donald Trump, you know, flipped America over and took him to school. And, sorry, I almost said something bad. Um, <laughs> but I don't, I don't think there's a scenario coming out of this where there's unity. I mean, I, I, I think there's a great desire in the country for some sense of normality and healing. And healing. But I don't think that our political parties as they exist right now in the current climate with Trump as this catalyst can get us there, at least not in the short term. So I meant to talk about Texas a little bit more than we've talked about so far, <laughs> and I'm going to pivot in our last uh, few minutes here before we have Q&A. Uh, okay, give me your unvarnished thoughts on Beto O'Rourke and Julian Castro on the presidential trail. Unimpressed? Impressed? What do you think? You're not starting with me, are They're you? They're both going to be here this weekend, uh, but you're getting out ahead of them. Well, Julian Castro has been sort of the fighter pilot in the debates. I mean, he will sort like of... Like a kamikaze right. fighter pilot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, I think that Beto O'Rourke found his voice after the, the tragedy in El Paso, but I don't see how either of this gets either of them closer to the nomination. Look, I call it the unbearable lightness of Beto, <laughs> which is my Milan Kundera joke that, you know, is obscure enough. But uh, I, look, he's a guy who on paper, there are all these assets, this sort of great stage presence in a weird way, and maybe he was about to have a moment, but he never quite manages to close the deal on the debate stage. There's never, it, there's never quite enough there, and, and there are times when the earnestness can seem like it's, 
it's like one Decemberist lyric short of the room laughing him out of the place. And I, I just, there's a thing about him that is, that, you know, if you're going to be that handsome, articulate guy, you've got to have some meat on the bone at some point. And he just doesn't feel that way. And yeah, and the gun control stuff, you know, he seemed to find his voice there. But, and I, have, I didn't run this through a focus group, but I can tell you if I put it in front of a focus group, they'd say, wow, he's really passionate about that. He really believes it. But the 57th time he says, fuck, it's not as, in, it's not as emphatic and believable as the first. So I think that's kind of a sticky thing he's gotten. So he's done in the camp. He's done in the presidential race, and I think he burned himself. I don't think he can come back and run statewide in Texas. I mean, I just I, no. I think he, I think he removed himself from consideration yeah. in Texas on the yeah. confiscate your uh, guns. Confiscate that's, guns. Yeah. That's, How's that going to work that's out? That's the for easiest Republican commercial in the history uh, of state yeah. politics. <laughs> I, I literally can make it in my sleep, but. Well, I do want to do a little bit of prognostication about the sort of future of Texas uh, in Congress. We see, we're seeing Republican after Republican saying they're not running for re-election. What writing on the wall are they seeing? Uh, where is Texas headed politically? Well, you know, I, uh, I can, I've written so many stories about politics in Texas with the phrase, the dutiful phrase, which has not elected a single Democrat statewide since 1994. Um, I... You know, certainly, I, I love the word Texas. I, I think, you know, these these Republican members were, were seeing the writing on the wall. I mean, people, what was it, five of them, you know, who never even had a tough race before suddenly found themselves within five points at last Right, three, three of the five were in really tough districts. Two of them, Conaway's district is a runaway Republican district. He had a, Demo he had a Democrat and a Libertarian and only managed to get 81% last time. And, and Flores', Flores district is a, is a double digit. But the other three are really tight. They were going to be in fights. Well, look, I mean, the Texas, the influx of population here from other states, California in particular, and the influx of Hispanic voters and the, and the growing number of Hispanic voters in the state is going to alter the chemistry. And we've all said that a million times. But at some point, you recognize that what held up the Republican Party here, just as what was holding up the Republican Party in Florida, and a number of other places, North Carolina, Virginia, is that the boomers are dying off. And oh. they were- No. <laughs> death, death comes to us all. I love that. Karen says, speak for yourself. I want that for my new ringtone. <laughs> but, but that cohort of older voters who were very, very reliable Republicans um, is, is demographically passing from political um, <laughs> activism. And so you're going to end up with a situation where, you know, uh, as the folks now from the Gen X wave come up, and they tend to be somewhat more democratic, and we're not seeing the same old-school progression we used to see. It used to be kids started out liberal, and they became more conservative with time. Now we're seeing a cohort that isn't doing that in the same way, and in a lot of ways I think Trump just just put a big cut in the middle of the electorate for the next 30 years. Um, and so, uh, again, the other, the other factor, though, where Republicans may hang on a little longer is Texas Republicans are pretty good at running campaigns. They are pretty good at the operational stuff of politics. In Florida, we shouldn't win all the campaigns that we do as Republicans, but, you know, the Democrats there can't organize a two-car motorcade. <laughs> and so you end up with organizational momentum and money and things like that where that overcomes some of the demographics, at least for a time. But you know, the writing's on the wall. 
And if you talk to Democratic strategists, they will, you know, point out of the top five most populous counties in the state, you know, four of them have been voting for Democrats for president, the fifth being Tarrant County. And on the bubble. Exactly. The, right. the, I think Tarrant County is the place to watch. Right. It voted for O'Rourke, but it also voted for Governor Abbott. So. All right, we are going to open this up to Q&A. We're going to do this by raising hands, and I believe there is or isn't a microphone. Uh, tight questions and tight answers, so we get through as many as we can. Uh, David Brooks tried for a film analogy in talking about a brief, brief history of the Warren uh, presidency. <laughs> and basically, she's saying, he's saying that she would win, that there would be like a transition relationship. What do you think? Yeah, I, I do. I, look, she's a technocratic sort of uh, approach to things. And we live in a world that doesn't value technocracy anymore. We live in a world that values ideological heat on both sides. And she's, she's doing a lot of the performative, ideological, progressive things. But at her heart, she wants to tinker with the machine. And, and that's, you know, that's got an appeal to it for people that want to get back to some stability. But I don't think politically that plays out over time. I also think that a lot of our problems are not tractable just by tweaking regulatory structures. Pink, salmon, whatever color that is. <laughs> so hypothetically, January 2021, there's a new Democratic president. Everyone generally talks about how you kind of heal the divide in this nation, but will that mean theoretically, and obviously when Trump was saying send her, you know, lock her up in 2016, that was obviously bad. Should there be a position of Democratic candidates on prosecuting the Trump administration and its people to the full extent of the law in this case? Well, the law is the law. If they've committed crimes, they ought to be prosecuted to the fullest extent. The problem with, the, with Trump yelling, lock her up, was they was making it up. Well, wait a minute. Do we get a Jerry Ford moment? Do we get a pardon moment where you say, you know, um, I'm going to put this back together? And we might. We, we might. You know, where, 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 the, where the president says, I'm gonna, I've got to, we've got to put this behind us. But let me tell you, the only way to put Donald Trump behind you is a shallow grave. I mean, it is not, this is not a guy who's ever going to shut up. He's never going to stop talking. He will tweet till he's on his deathbed. What is all your death references? <laughs> you know, like I said, mortality stalks us all. <laughs> I'm 55 he's years a, old He's a baby year. boomer. He doesn't have much time. <laughs> Um, this is for Emily Ramshaw and Ross Ramsey. Um, uh oh, sorry. that sounds dangerous. It's, it's like specifically about Texas. Um, what, what do y'all think about Rick Perry being named in the whistleblower report today? Uh, he, it was, it was sort of a side glance. He, he got Pence got called off of a trip, and Perry did a substitute move. That's kind of what energy secretaries do, I think. I don't, I don't think there was a culpability thing. I think it was just, hey, your name's in this thing. Yeah, it's, it's they just. They didn't want Pence to go, so they went, hey, we'll send Rick. You know, it, it was not, it doesn't sound like he was involved in this. Just the understudy. Right. <laughs> More questions, yes, right here. I heard uh, Matt Lewis this morning say that if Elizabeth Warren is the nominee, that Trump will crush her. Do you agree with that? You know, I used to think that if Donald Trump was the Republican nominee, <laughs> uh, so... I just don't think, in fact, I, I should probably say that, you know, I was writing the Washington Post print edition main lead-all election story the night of the election, and 
as of 8.30 that night, I didn't have a backup for America elects its first woman president. So I, I think anybody who says now that they can predict who would crush whom, uh, or I don't know if I'm using the who and the whom, on, but anyway, nobody knows. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I do think if it's Bernie, Trump wins 46 states. But Could we just pause for a moment here, though, because... So the we have like four potential people who look like they have a shot at being president on January 20th, 2021. All four of them are above the age of 70. The top, the three oldest Democratic candidates are the three leaders in the race. Um, I just think that, you know, where that, what that tells us about our politics, I don't know. The boomers are alive and well. <laughs> <laughs> not for long. Yeah. <laughs> uh, not without a fight. Yeah. <laughs> um, actually, this is for Mr. Wilson. As a, there is this demographic shift in Texas, and as a campaign strategist, I'm curious about where you think the bigger bang for the buck is. Is it registering new voters with no voting history? Or is it going after people that vote your way but vote that way sporadically? Where's the bigger bang for the buck? And also, do you have any additional information on the sleeping arrangements tonight for Paul Manafort? <laughs> well, I would have to check, but I'm pretty sure Paul is still going to be in prison this evening. It's one of my favorite jokes, sorry. Um, that's not a death joke. That's a prison joke. It's a corollary to the right? getting slowly better. Uh, I, am a, I am a big fan of voter registration. It is the killer app in politics, and I'll tell you why. Because today, this is an exercise in competing data systems. And once you get those people registered, you start learning about them, and you start wondering and testing how you can motivate them to vote for you, and how you can get them out there into the field, and how you can get them to volunteer and donate and be active. The more, the better. There's a law of large numbers that, ha that, that kicks in with those things. And, and the minute you're looking at, vote, you're not just looking at a name on, a, on an index card anymore. It's a voter file connected to, to consumer data, connected to browsing habits, connected to this huge amorphous cloud of information about everybody. And you start to build relationships between those people and you turn them into activists. So registering more of them is better. Registering people who are comfortable digital natives is really good. And the sooner you get them in your system, the longer you have them. All right, I have uh, one more quick sponsored content thing to tell you about. If you are not listening to The Weeds by Vox, a podcast for people who love getting into the weeds, you should be. Every week, Matthew Iglesias, who is here for the festival, is joined by a variety of leading Vox voices and policy experts to dig into the weeds. Uh, the Weeds will be live in Austin with Matt Daryland and Jane Coaston. Uh, I believe it's tomorrow. Check your schedules to be sure. Uh, you can subscribe now on your favorite uh, podcast uh, um, provider. Okay, we, um, you all need to go get in line for the next event here. <laughs> and if you haven't already become a member, you should because you get to get at the front of the line. You can do that at 800 Congress. Please join me in thank you, uh, thank you, thanking my four <laughs> panelists here. Thanking and thank you. Thank you. Thank you Fun so as much. Always. That was great. So much.